Democracy was Christianity's answer to tyranny. So says Curtis Chang of the Duke Divinity School. The kings of Europe, even the Roman Catholic Church's hierarchy, had become so corrupt it resulted in English, Scottish, German Enlightenment thinkers in Christian universities to develop the ideas of a liberal social order, small l, classical liberalism. Locke, Hume, Kant, and others cast a vision for individual rights, civil liberties, the rule of law, limited government, majority rule balanced with minority rights. Chang asks, if Christians developed a social order to answer the tyranny of the Middle Ages, what is the Christian's responsibility today? To invent a new social order or double down on classical liberalism? Various Christian traditions will answer this question differently, from the Lutherans to the Methodists to the Roman Catholics. There are reasons why Shakers in Pennsylvania ride in horse-driven buggies, while other denominations offer live-stream worship services. There are theological foundations and historical mile markers that bring me as a Calvinist to seek change through a podcast, while the Roman Catholic has long sought transformation through social service initiatives. In the workplace, we often encounter the breadth of the Christian tradition in ways we don't otherwise. Water cooler conversations between Christians can become rather heated when topics such as politics come up. Can two people who follow Jesus genuinely hold diametrically opposed political positions, one a Trump supporter and the other for Biden? Nuance is a podcast of The Collaborative, where we wrestle together about life beyond the walls of the church, and especially at work. Here we wade into the muddy waters of the public square itself with special attention given to the work of our hands, our careers, our vocational efforts towards the common good. Last time, we established the idea of public theology and the public square. Well, today we take a survey of the variety of options for the Christ follower. Well, to help us to do this, we have invited Jonathan Chaplin to join our conversation. Dr. Chaplin is a member of the Center for Faith in Public Life at Wesley House in Cambridge. He's a member of the Cambridge University Divinity Faculty. He's a senior fellow of the Canadian Christian think tank Cardus, for which he writes regularly. He's lectured and written widely on the themes of Christian political thought. His latest publication is Faith and Democracy, Framing a Politics of Deep Diversity. He's also written on religion and secularism for the British newspaper, The Guardian. I am grateful to have Dr. Chaplin here with us and with you for this conversation. My name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to Nuance. Well, again, my name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to our episode, Crossland, my partner here. Good to see you. Good to see you. Glad to be and here. And Dr. Chaplin, we appreciate you being with us all the way from the UK. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and to join this very interesting conversation. Well, Crossland, start us off. Well, Dr. Chaplin, here at Nuance, we talk a lot about 
ideas and the habituation of them in our lives. But we don't ever want to lose sight of the power of story and the value of story because I think it helps all of us better understand things. So we would love to know more about your story. I would uh, love for our audience to get to know you a little bit better, as well as uh, how did you become interested in public theology? Oh, that started many years ago when I was a teenager. And I was raised in what was then a fairly conventional, suburban, middle-class, evangelical Anglican church in the north of England, um, will be recognizable to, to many of you. Um, and I just increasingly began to find a tension between two things in my life. One, my experience of church and my reading of the Bible, which seemed to me full of calls to do justice, to show compassion, to show mercy, to care for the poor. And on the other hand, my theology and my church experience, which seemed to say very little about that at all, talked mm. a great deal about personal righteousness and evangelism and, and prayer, all really important things. But I, I couldn't put those two together. And so that propelled me into a search for a more integrated reading of the Bible and reading of, of church and a, a sense of what church should be if we read the Bible truthfully and accurately and listening to all those calls for justice and peace and, and, and compassion. So that's where it all started. And then through my university years and, and beyond, when I did graduate study. I, I looked for mentors and I looked for places where I could go into depth into all those questions. That took me to some interesting places, and eventually, you know, I decided to become an academic. I, I figured that was my calling, and um, that's been my focus ever since, to really ask the question, how does an authentic biblical faith speak powerfully, mm. prophetically, critically, uh, empathetically to our social and political crises and challenges, which are very different today than when I started out, but even more serious and even more troubling. Now, that's a very short bio for you. I can relate. I grew up in a, a suburb, suburb of Atlanta as a Methodist and then a Presbyterian and solid evangelical environment, I realized looking back. And in our community, you didn't see the homeless so much. Well, one day there was a homeless man, and I, as a middle schooler, kind of threw a fit and said, we've got to go get him a meal. And uh, my father, who was a very godly man, an elder in the church, was very reticent and no, 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 he's fine. There'll be services for him. And I could not understand. <laughs> We're Christians, right? Why, why aren't we meeting this man's need? So it um, it does shape you as you. Yeah, absolutely. Grow in your tradition. Well, I I echo those. Yeah, I echo those kinds of concerns too. And uh, you know, my family and my church were great people, and they did show a lot of compassion on an individual basis to people. That, that wasn't the issue. Um, you know, they were open to all races. They were open to all kinds of people. They, they cared for the four. But what they didn't do was take the next step and ask, so what does that mean institutionally? What does that mean politically? What does mm -hmm. that mean for our government system? What does that mean for our welfare system, for our immigration system, for our economic system? What does it mean for our educational system? All those things, those questions were, were hardly asked. And what I found, and this is what particularly troubled me, is that you know, many of my fellow believers at the time simply lined up their political beliefs with 
standard mainstream secular options with no attempt to reflect critically on those political choices. From we a have no idea what you're referring to here. You know, we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we don't do that in American Christianity. No. <laughs> but it's real. Oh gosh. Well. Yeah. And reflecting critically seems to be becoming an increasingly difficult task uh, for for all of us, whether it's institutional or as individuals. And so that's one of the reasons I'm really excited for you to be with us yeah, today. Yeah, we've lost a lot of the nuance. All right, right. I got to get that plug yes. in there. <laughs> well, Jonathan, so I have always been taken with how other Christians from other denominations uh, approach how they do respond, both individually and institutionally. So could you just kind of give us a, a survey of the landscape from how various Christian traditions uh, look at their engagement in the public square. Okay, that's a tough assignment in just a few minutes, but, uh, but let me have a stab at it. Um, <laughs> so it's a complex landscape. Uh, nobody needs reminding of that. Um, and maybe the first thing to say, well, two, two, two things to say first. One is that the deep tribal uh, animosities that are now tearing America apart and increasingly tearing much of Europe apart um, uh, do not line up one-to-one -one with any one denominational or confessional tradition on public mm. theology. So, you know, you can't say that um, Methodists are more prone to a slavish devotion to the Republican or the Democratic Party than Catholics. We're in a kind of we're in a kind of mess now, uh, in that those traditions have actually lost their capacity to direct us in faithful ways. That's one of the problems we have. All traditions are struggling to dig into their own resources in order to give guidance to their members, and so therefore we are all of us susceptible to being swept up in these pernicious tribal uh, movements. Um, kind of crazy, irrational movements on, on, on different sides of the political spectrum. So that's one preliminary thing to say. The other thing in is that even without the in. current discontent. Oh, yeah. Well, just to point out that, yeah. I mean, but in American history, those uh, tribal denominational differences did make a difference. If you were a Presbyterian or a Catholic, I mean, when John F. Kennedy was elected, it was very much a part of people's perception of their candidates and interpretation of their agenda. Yeah, I think that's right, and uh, I think that's a new problem that we have now. That you know we, we, we're we're at sea and vulnerable to these these radical um, distorting movements, and we, we we lack rootedness in our own traditions. So, so the the other preliminary thing to say is that e even uh, taking for granted what you say is right, case, which I think it is, and that, that was that was also true over here in Europe. You know, if you were a kind of a German Lutheran, people kind of knew where you would more or less come out. If you were a, um, um, uh, 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 an English Anglican, people would have a broad sense of where you might end up politically in, in broader sense. It's much harder to, to um, predict that now. But, but even then, uh, there was quite a bit of diversity. So it's not possible to say, here's the reform view on public theology, or here's the Catholic view. There's, there's a multiplicity of views. Nevertheless, those traditions, those denominational and confessional traditions still have some power. They still have some identity. So it is meaningful to, to talk about them. So, I mean, do you want me to now just try to give a quick overview? I mean, 
one could start, let's say, with the least known uh, tradition, which would be the Anabaptist tradition. This goes back to the 16th century Anabaptists, those who were scorned by the main reformers for being too radical <laughs> and for being too separatist. They were pacifist. Uh, they were nonviolent. They did not participate in government. They were on the fringe of the Reformation. Um, and, and they really rejected engagement in the public square. They, they sort of rejected public theology as something beyond the remit of the true gospel. You know, the gospel was about creating a holy community separate from society. And you see elements of that in, you know, remaining traditions like the Amish, for example, um, in, in various places. But then today, what you might call the neo-Anabaptists have changed out of all recognition. I'm thinking here of powerful theologians like John Howard Yoder, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, and many others in that school. Those are no longer separatists. They don't no longer advocate withdrawal from society. They're still pacifist. They're still nonviolent. They're still quite reluctant to engage in government, government office holding. That's not a priority for them. Some are quite cautious about that. They advocate keeping a prophetic distance from the state and indeed from other institutions, but they want to engage with those institutions prophetically out of a, um, out of a sort of a, a commitment to the gospel in the public realm. So it's a different kind of engagement. It's, it's not separatist, um, <clears throat> but they're still, as I say, reluctant to commit themselves to, uh, you know, wholehearted engagement in political institutions. But there's still an enormous amount we can learn from them as the, you know, the critical voice that is often so, so often muffled by those who get too close to power. So that's right. one strand. And people who hold that view today might find them working in different sectors of society. You know, they're not all huddled in a holy community anymore. But you will find them adopting a a routinely critical voice and, and, and distancing voice against the major mm -hmm. trends, whether it's in large corporations, whether it's in government, uh, whether it's in education and so forth. They'll be the sort of the most radical critical voices. So that's one end of the spectrum. Um, another main tradition uh, is associated with classical Lutheranism, although it has also been influential, very influential in Calvinism. Um, for much of the Calvinist tradition, this was also the case. It's kind of a two kingdoms model, whereby uh, you know, God is seen as, um, as, as uh, calling Christians to be faithful in the church, to live up to the norms of the gospel, the calling of the gospel within the church. But then he also calls people to participate in other institutions, in social institutions, but not according to the norms of the gospel, according to less demanding norms, which are suitable for a fallen world in which people cannot be expected to live up to the mm. higher demands mm. of the gospel. Okay, so, so you might, for example, this reminds find me, such... Yeah. If I may say, this reminds me, and I know Carlson's going to laugh. Are you familiar with the American TV show Survivor? <laughs> and are, are you familiar with Survivor? I hope not. Um, well, it's so funny. This is this silly game where adults go live for 40 days on a deserted island and try to compete and win. And they always feature the Christian. And then they always love to feature when the Christian stabs somebody in the back to win the game. And it's like, well, do you play the game? 
to win or can you play the game true to your Christian convictions? And <laughs> it makes for good TV. Okay, you, 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 you've captured this idea pretty well there, Case, actually. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so I mean, to, to, to give a more serious, but, but no less evocative example, uh, take somebody who is working in government, let's say in um, you know, the Defense Department uh, or, or even is in the military, and you know, is contemplating um, whether to engage in military action in, in some setting, whatever. Now, in the Christian tradition, there has been a long-standing understanding of what's called just war principles, so that there are there are certain grounds that could permit a state to engage in military action if certain conditions are met. Now, if if you're shaped more by that two kingdoms model, you will have less demanding standards. Uh, of just war principles, whereas if you are shaped um, more by uh, a Catholic or Reformed position, you will tend to hold the view that even though there might be a need for military action in certain cases, that should be tempered, it should be mitigated by mercy, by love, by compassion. Even in the case of military action, you want to say we want to minimize casualties, we want to minimize damage. We want to create conditions for a just peace as soon as possible. That will be at the forefront of your mind. And if you cannot see that that's a piece of, that, that that's possible, you will then argue against military action. So it could make a difference, even in terms of questions like as, as practical and as momentous as, as that. That's just, that's just one example. Mm, that's great. And you see such a difference in what we're observing with the Russia-Ukraine situation at least uh, from the U.S. perspective uh, on war uh, publicly and in policy. I know folks will have a wide view of opinions on the U.S. military, um, but at least that uh, desire to have a just war approach is uh, in the system. Uh, well, you know, that's a very interesting question. You'd be more qualified to comment on that than I would. Um, I I would... I think there's a difficult conversation to be had there uh, about not just the U.S. military, but but NATO more generally, including the U.K., which is a leading military power in NATO right now. The U.K. is playing a key mm -hmm. role in in Ukraine. Um, you know, there's. I would tend to say that uh, most wars that have been fought. This is my view now speaking. I'm not representing any any tradition. In, in most wars that have been fought, frankly, in the modern age, have violated one or more just war principle quite seriously um, sure uh, you know mm. I mean, in the in the in the second world war britain um firebombed german cities causing almost as much damaging civilian casualty as hiroshima mm. and nagasaki so you know we we have we have a very complicated track record both our nations yeah. in in this regard um but For i would sure. certainly say that um you know if you have so let me just move on to another another position. That that was kind of a, to illustrate a, what I called a two kingdom position. Now, in another strand of the reform tradition, particularly Calvinism, particularly modern Calvinism, you have what's called a one kingdom model. So you don't have a two tier ethic, as if God is holding the world to some lower standard of performance than the church. You have one kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ, um, and it's essentially the call through Christ for the whole of creation to be restored 
to its original calling under God, the whole of the world, the whole of human history, whole of human culture, to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. Um, not according to some two-tier ethic, but, but essentially according to one uh, norm of, of justice, peace, shalom, that, that runs right throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. And as I personally, as I read the Bible, that's the one that makes most, most sense to me. So I'm a one kingdom and, and for reformed us guy, mm -hmm. if, you want, if you want me to. Yeah. And, and that does make a difference because it means that you cannot simply relax or take your foot off the uh, accelerator, so to speak, when you're trying to engage in the public realm, in the secular public realm. You have yeah. to, as it were, look out for and positively encourage every approximation of gospel truth, gospel yeah. mercy, gospel justice, gospel peace in that setting, whether it's a military setting or whether it's a, a college staff room or whether it's a church, you know, I mean, the church itself has its own issues, as we all know. So that's a different vision of public theology. It means that you're always looking for where God's kingdom can be manifested. You know, not that we bring it in, but we are on the lookout for signs of God at work bringing his kingdom in. And therefore, we live in hope in whatever institution we're in, workplace, government, wherever it is. You know, we live in hope that there can be incremental approximations to the gospel of Christ uh, and the healing and the reconciliation and the renewal that comes through Christ. And we're not going to stop short by, as it were, falling into... Um, a kind of two-tier model in which, uh, you know, if we if we just fulfil a very low benchmark of performance, then we've done our duty as a Christian. So that is a significant uh, difference between the two kingdoms model and the and the one kingdom model. Um, maybe I should say that that broad model of one kingdom doesn't itself resolve any of the specific political divides that are tearing us apart. So you will find representatives of the one kingdom model passionately voting for Biden and others who passionately work for Trump and will be doing again in, in 2024. So that's, that's only the beginning of a perspective. It's a beginning of an orientation. It's a way of, of framing the question. Then you've got to do a lot of the detailed work of figuring out what are the, what are the principles that are governing or distorting the secular world. What 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 is fundamentally wrong? You know, yeah. Well, and from your, I do think that you've just hit the nail on the head because you'll have a group of people who would profess a one kingdom mentality, and uh, and yet there would be differing views on so many things. And we can just take the easy one of uh, American politics, whether it's the Republican stance or what Biden is projecting uh, and implementing now, there would be real differences of opinion there. How do we understand and therefore love our neighbor better, whether they're at our dinner table or whether they're at the water cooler at work or their vendors that we work with? You know, how do we... You know, when nowadays the temptation is to get up and leave the table <laughs> or you just don't have conversations with people, you know, they're just things that we do not discuss. And as a result of that, 
I think we're we are furthering entrenching ourselves into a hole and we're not being faithful to what scripture calls us to be a salt and light. Absolutely. And you know, to the extent that the church today in America or anywhere is simply echoing and replicating, uh, indeed fueling the same tribal divisions yes. that are tearing our society apart. We we are guilty of a terrible failure of uh, of, of discipleship, and, and you know, it is discrediting the witness of the gospel before the world in really appalling ways that are going to take a long, long time to recover from and heal. You know, there's generations now of especially younger people who look at these divisions and the acrimony with which we argue with each other. This is just Christians now, never mind the rest of the world. And they say, okay, well, if that's right. what Christianity means, you can keep it. Um, you know, I can't possibly be interested yeah. in a God whose people think that kind of behavior is remotely justifiable. So we have, all of us, in every nation, we have some deep repentance to do collectively. And that's going to take generation. And that's a key question that we need to ask. How do we start that process? And I, I would call it repentance because we have to renounce these ways. You know, Paul himself says, renounce worldly ways. We have sold out to them big time. And we've got to, we've got to go back to Christ um, and, you know, begin again, look, working and learning again the way of Christ. Um, mm. You know, Paul says, uh, you know, by now you should be on um, solid food, but you need to go back to, you know, the, the very basics, kind of the milk of the gospel. That's where we need to do, right back to the beginning. Um, so you're absolutely right, Crossland, that the way that we are um, eight, you know, speaking to each other in hateful and excluding ways is, is really shameful. At the same time, I would say this. Um, we can't move out of this situation by refusing to speak the truth. In other words, by simply pitting unity and reconciliation against speaking the truth. So there's no way around difficult conversations. There's no way around whether, whether the water cooler, whether the family dinner table, you know, during Brexit six years ago, families mm. across the UK were torn apart by this. Christian families yes. were, were torn apart. So we've had a little bit of this as well. We know, um, but you've got to have the difficult conversations, you know, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll speak personally for myself. Um, to me, you know, the presidency of Donald Trump was an abomination for multiple reasons. And, and I would argue in those difficult conversations, hopefully graciously, civilly, respectfully, I would argue, you know, people who've hitched themselves to that wagon have really got to, you know, break free from that captivity and, uh, you know, detach themselves from really an unholy alliance, which isn't to say any other party is a holy alliance, far from it. So, you know, we've got to have the difficult conversations and we've got to somehow balance that bold speaking of the truth um, with, at the same time, respect for the human being that is sitting, sitting right across us at the table, whatever table that might be, and that they too are made in the image of God. They have concerns. They may have truths that we have to pay attention to. So, right, let's, mm. let's jump straight into Roe v. Wade. Do you want, do you want to... 
do that for a couple of minutes. Actually, um, yes. Yeah, so I, I was mean, hoping you, know, you would take a social did issue. Did you have a question and, about that? Yeah. Well, I, I was hoping you would take one particular social issue and walk us through how mm. the various uh, Christian views might view that. I'll throw in, I mean, we at the Collaborative really resonate. That's why we do what we do on your statement about the um, long, long time of healing and discipleship. We're Kuiper fans, mm. and I heard that reflected in your Calvinistic yeah, view. Yeah. So, yes, please help us with mm. Roe v. Wade. Yeah, well, I mean, goodness me, it's it's just explosive, isn't it? Uh, it's it's one of the most disruptive yes. legal decisions for our generations. Um, you know, we, we we're picking up the the ramifications of that over here through through our media as well. Um, but you know, what it must be like for you is much much more intense. So look, I mean, here there's right, the first thing to do is to take a deep breath, sit back, and First of all, try to work out an inventory of questions. There's not just one question involved here. It's not just, are you for or against abortion? Is the fetus a human or a person or not? You know, does the woman have a right to choose that? Attempts to reduce the question to just that one or other question are going to fail. So for a start, what's happened is, in some ways, um, quite a technical legal outcome, that the uh, authority to determine abortion policy has been referred back to the states. So, you know, those who are saying abortion is now banned, of course, that's, that isn't true. Um, if it's going to be banned or restricted, it's going to happen at state level. That's already happening. So, so there's, the, there's the technical question of what actually happened and what are the implications of that. Um, now, I myself think, and I, I think a lot of Americans would share this view, a lot of American Christians would share the view. This is not a decision that should ever have been made by the nine justices of the Supreme Court back in 73. This is a decision that should have been made by Congress. It's a national decision that was so important that it needed to take place by the representative body of the whole people. We can argue about how representative Congress is. That's another conversation. But that's, I think, the locus of where the decision should be made. Um, now, right now, that's not the case because Congress is completely stymied, completely divided on that. So by default, states will move in and make those decisions, and that's what's happening. Um, so there's that question. There's the question of what, whether it's federal or state, what should be a just regulation of the rights of the unborn child or the fetus? That's, that's a key question that a lot of people don't want to confront. And that's where you get into deeper questions of uh, you know the humanity um, and personal identity of of an unborn child. Now I'm I'm very clear on this. I think that um, you know from the moment of of conception there is a human life in the womb, and a human life brings with it fundamental human rights. And one of those is the right to life. So that's I'm quite unashamedly pro-life in that sense. Uh, I don't see also biblically or theologically, how you can reach another view. There's no arbitrary scientific cut, cutoff, a biological cutoff point um, that, that, that other than conception, I think, that, that um, indicates the beginning of a human life. But then you've got to ask the question, so if that's the case, how do we protect that unborn life? But how do we also balance the rights of the life of the unborn child with the rights of the mother and of the father, which we tend to get 
completely ignored in this question. Um, yeah, mothers true. have rights. You know, they are human beings too. They have dignity. They have, they have, they have choice. They have agency. Uh, many women who turn to abortion are, are suffering from various kinds of deprivation, um, poverty, and exclusion, which makes the prospect of another pregnancy unbearable to them. We can't just set that aside. You know, that has to be factored in somewhere into the eventual balance. Then there's the question of, okay, so if we're pro-life, are we going to be pro-life after birth as well as before birth? In other words, mm. are we going to put in place the social, educational, economic support systems that make life possible, that help women to make those pro-life choices? And that's you know a long discussion there. So those are just some of the questions. So that's the first thing. In, draw up a list of the key questions that need to be discussed and then work through them one by one in as dispassionate a way as possible. Extremely difficult to do that these days. But to me, that's one of the witnesses that the Christian church should be offering, that it should create sure. a, a safe and a civic and a respectful space in which those kinds of detailed conversations can at least you know begin, in which all sides are heard. Jonathan, I uh, so appreciate how you lay that out. So many different complex questions. And my hope is that our listeners will take the time to recognize the various questions, the complexity, and that one's response is an attempt to respond to them all. So my daughter, my beautiful, smart, hardworking 17-year-old daughter, loves to have text conversations on deep topics with me, <laughs> which isn't always the best medium, but hey, she's talking to me. And she has such a theological mind. And even I think she's a bit of an apologist in how she discusses faith with friends. Well, the other night, she's kind of tuning in to all the Roe v. Wade conversation. And so she starts texting me, well, what do we believe? And why is this? And why is that? We go on and on. And finally, I get the text of a lifetime for a father, a Christian father. She says, honestly, dad, from reading everything you've said and everything I've said, the only thing I'm really getting from all of this is that you truly have to be involved and invested in God to survive in this world. Woo! <laughs> you know, there we are. There well, we are. You know, that's that. That's uh, how can anyone improve on that? Um, you know, <laughs> that, that? That's the foundation of everything we want to do, um, and that's where the discussion then starts and proceeds from, and always has to refer back to. Um, yeah, but you know, it's sure. it's it's um, final on on Roe v. Wade. I mean, the fact that so many professing evangelicals—I'm going to say professing evangelicals—those right, who self-identify as evangelicals—have so invested almost exclusively in overturning Roe v. Wade through capturing the Republican Party over the last thirty years. That that has been their almost exclusive concern um, is has 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 left the wider body of Christ politically fractured and and divided because there are you know twenty other issues where issues of life and death are right at the forefront. I mean, uh, poverty, military action, you know, mm. climate change, you name it. It's not the only pro-life. It's not the only life issue. And to, to to hitch our wagon exclusively to that one goal, however important it is, um, you know, I think it's been a tragic mistake by by many Christians. 
Now you can say that you might find parallel examples on the progressive left. That's also possible. Mm -hmm. Where whatever it is, we cannot simply reduce the public power of the gospel to one issue. Um, well, tell you know, me this. We've really got because... to develop a broad view in which all these things are integrated and balanced together um, in the light of the best traditions of public theology that we can lay our hands on. Well, help me in our closing moments here think about this, because we have listeners yeah. that are Trump supporters and voters. Um, so I uh, know that someone would say, hey, Jonathan, yes, I agree with you on Roe v. Wade, uh, but I might be in a different place on candidates and other things. When we're at work and we are living our faith, when we're encountering people with a mixture of these perspectives, what it would be your advice? So I, I think the first thing I'd want to say is that we all need to hold each other accountable to this principle. Right? Wherever we are on the spectrum, the principle is our highest authority is Jesus Christ and the church that he has established to witness to him. That's our highest authority. And we've got to find ways to make sure that we have not sold our souls to some political movement, however plausible it might seem, in ways that we are no longer submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ on this or that or any other issue. You know, whether it's gun control or poverty or immigration, whatever it might be. There's no simple way to guarantee that, but we've got to commit ourselves to holding each other accountable. That means we both need to speak the truth at that water cooler or dinner table, but we also got to be prepared to listen to the truth from others. And that means being prepared to detach ourselves from our political loyalties sufficiently that the unexpected word of the gospel can sneak in and start to question some of our judgments and some of our commitments. That's, that's, we've got to create a, a body of Christ where that process of critical revision, critical questioning can take place. If we, if we allow that, that, that chink in the armor, right, where the word of God can speak to us, then we begin to be the body of Christ again and, and learn from each other and, and affirm each other, not eliminating all difference, that's never going to happen, but helping each other to escape from the idolatries of our age, which I think have crippled the churches today, and you know, to refocus our loyalty on, on, on Jesus Christ. Difficult. Jonathan, that is great. Those are great words. Uh, thank you so much for your wisdom and insight and taking the time to be with us today. I think uh, one of the really important takeaways as we think about this example of Roe v. Wade is, um, is not selling ourselves out to one thing. The gospel is to be integrated into all of life. Uh, and here at, the new, yeah. here at Nuance, we're trying to make sure we do that better, particularly at work. But how we behave in our private lives spills over into our work. That's unavoidable. And so um, I think you've really helped us really go back to the basics and to remember uh, what, we would, what we would all profess, but sadly, we're terrible at practicing. <laughs> um, so thank you again for being yes, with thank us. You so it's much. been a great delight. Well, thank you for the, the privilege of being part of this, uh, this 
great set of conversations that I know you've already got going and you're having in other settings. It's a really exciting program. And, you know, I really wish you God's blessing on that whole program that it may uh, help equip people who are struggling to be faithful in their work lives to take the next step uh, in that walk of faithfulness. So thank you. Cross and I so appreciated Jonathan's accent. Oh my goodness. If you have an English accent, you just sound smarter. But he <laughs> actually had incredible content and insights. One thing I want to ask you, I loved how he said, we've got to be able to detach ourselves from our political loyalties just long enough for the gospel to inform. And that's where sometimes I wonder if uh, folks with whom I'm in conversation have taken a break from their political loyalties, the media's influence left and right, and thought, okay, what is my Christian biblical conviction? Now let me move into policies or political parties that pair with that. Your thoughts? Well, I think we're not doing that. I think we're tired. I think we're allowing our emotions to supersede almost everything along with felt needs. And uh, we're forgetting who we are. Uh, and more importantly, we're forgetting who we've been made by. That the creator of the heaven and earth is, is on a throne in heaven and it is occupied. Mm. It's not empty. Um, there are no maverick molecules running maverick around. Molecules. And so we can take a great, we can take a deep breath, as Jonathan encouraged us to. And remember, who is our highest authority? Mm -hmm. And then what does that look like in my life? Let's think about asking those critical questions, not just on Roe v. Wade or gun control or who I'm going to vote for in the next election, but let's think about what does Jesus say? What do we do here? How do I love my coworker better? How do I pray for and them? We look at what Jesus says, and it might lead us to the same policy desires. It might, yeah. Well, that's many right. of our listeners know that spiritual formation of the heart is very important to our work at the collaborative. All of our programs have an integration of spiritual formation because the brain can get a lot of information, but if the heart's not formed, that information is not as effective. No. Like you say, people are tired. But yet when we get renewed in the Lord and, and intentionally through prayer time and time with him and uh, constructive ways to work through the tired, um, I just, that's why I think spiritual formation is so important in these political times. And I couldn't agree more. And I think this interview with Jonathan actually makes the case for that and is very convicting to me. You know, he begins the interview pretty early on. He asks the question, um, how does one authentically uh, have an authentic faith uh, speak into or understand the public square? I butchered how he said it, but um, it was basically that. Could you sentiment. say that with and a British accent? <laughs> But, you know, if we, as genuine believers who desire to serve, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We have got to be abiding in Mm. him through prayer and scripture reading. And we just need to make that a habit that continues to be a part of every day Um, and trust that it will I don't think anyone ever becomes an expert or uh, perfect in prayer and spiritual formation. That's why it's so beautiful. There's always more. There's always deeper. Yes. And in my busy life, I have to fight to protect those times and to force those times. Um, even somebody uh, once commented, oh, um, uh, you seem kind of lazy because you're taking this hour uh, several times a week in numerous ways. And I thought, you just don't get it. <laughs> That's where the life yeah. comes from. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. Uh, maybe next time we're together, we will only speak in our uh, British accents, not our Southern twanks. How's that sound? <laughs> That sounds great. <laughs> My British accent is poorly lacking, though. However, oh, give it, give us a sample. Come on, come on. All right. I do not have one. Have a jolly good day. Jolly good day. Cheerio. <laughs> Cheerio. We believe strongly that great conversations can stir hearts and minds. To further encourage this, we've included a link in the show notes to a spiritual formation exercise related to today's discussion. Help us spread the word about Nuance. Like the show, share, and subscribe so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative, the faith and work ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Orlando. Nuance is produced by Candy Goats PJ Weary and edited by Zach Baldwin. Music composed and performed by Fletcher Wilson. Nuance is made possible by the generosity of the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Jr. Foundation. For more episodes, visit CollaborativeOrlando.com, our YouTube channel named The Collaborative Orlando, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our three different fellowships, vocational guilds, and other programs, to subscribe to our newsletter, our bi-monthly blog, visit us online and join us on social media. On behalf of Crossland Stewart and myself, thanks for joining us. And remember that most of life is not black and white, but rather lived in the nuance.